Well, last week we talked about our epic two-minute ride, our adventure ride, our Snow White ride, and it's going to take us through a lot of experiences and challenges, opportunities, and God's going to use those to carefully weave together our uh, lives so that we can grow. And these could well be described as the terrain of our journey. And though they vary wildly in scope and uh, nature, they basically fall into one of three categories. you got the valleys, the times of trial, the in-betweens, everyday life, routine, and the mountaintops. All three have their challenges. All three have their opportunities. So today, we're going to talk about the downs. Those difficult, dark days where life throws us to the ground and then seems to stomp all over us. Diagnosis of cancer, unexpected firing from a job, being betrayed by a close friend. It's life in the dark valley. And most likely we'll spend more time there than we would prefer. But each of these trains provide their own unique challenges, opportunities, and dangers. But this valley experience is something we have to make it through. We'll start with a quote from a saint from the Middle Ages, a Spanish saint named Teresa de Avila. She said this, God, no wonder you have so few friends. Look how you treat them. (laughs) Well, you know, it would make perfect sense that the first words to mankind from God's story, his epic tale that he tells us, would be in the beginning God. Because every great tale has to have a beginning and something long ago in a faraway land or uh, once upon a time. So it's no real surprise the words of Genesis open with in the beginning. Uh, But though Genesis tells us the earliest history, scholars believe the first written book begins this way. Now there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Uz, not Oz. Why would God put the first written letter to mankind be the book of Job. Well, I started to understand this when I had a Job experience, one of these deep valley experiences, and I really suffered. And I found myself asking the same kind of questions Job must have. Why me? What is life about? Is this worthwhile? Why all this pain? Why can't I just live a comfortable life and then go to heaven? And I, I began to find answers to my questions in Job. And it's really formed a real pillar, a foundation for how I see life at this point. And I haven't really lived life happily ever after, after going through that valley. But I have learned how to live a sort of transcendent happiness, something that's rooted in a perspective. And that's what I hope to explain to you today. Well, when Job opens, we find all kinds of actors. God, Satan, angels, and men. But it's interesting, the focal point of this grand epic tale is one person, the man Job. Isn't that cool? God deals with each one of us individually. Jesus said every hair on our head is numbered. How much God cares about us individually. And what we know about Job is God really really liked Job. He was his favorite guy. Well, what is it that God will do for the man he seeks to honor? We'll see. The book of Job hits at the heart of what it really means to be in this world. Job goes through trials none of us would choose. 
At one point, Job even wishes he had not been born. His best friends show up and chastise him. His wife ridicules him. His kids are no longer alive to comfort him. Little wonder why Job's overriding request to God is, let me have my day in court. Let me show you how you've erred. Then we can straighten out this mess. Have you ever thought that way? If you're old enough, you've felt this too. I certainly have. We really need the book of Job. It it makes great sense as to why it's the first written story to instruct us on our two-minute adventure. It lets us know why the ride's, well, a ride. In 1 Peter 3.14, the Apostle Paul says, Real happiness comes from suffering for being righteousness. But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are happy, he says. Well, since Job's declared by God to be the most righteous man around, we're going to have to understand something about Peter and God's idea of a happy ride. Job's pilgrimage allows us to understand what happier and wealthier really means from God's perspective. And most importantly, why we need it. Uh, Why it isn't better just to go to the Snow White's scary adventure ride and just skip to the exit and wait for the grown-ups to come off. Uh, That would certainly make Satan happy. It's an option. It's not a good option. We have an adversary inciting and opposing us every step. Everything in Satan's playbook toward us is designed to erode and neutralize our faith, to sabotage our confidence in God. God has our best interest at heart. And that's one of the hardest lessons to learn. That is the core essence of what it means to walk by faith. And the book of Job also helps us to see this ride is cosmic. It's epic. It's affecting everything in the universe and all eternity. Each one of our own personal rides. Because of Job's perseverance and trust, angels danced, demons sulked. Satan went home with his tail between his legs. The journey of Job shouted not only to the seen inhabitants of the earth, but also the unseen inhabitants of the heavenlies, that trusting God through life circumstances leads to knowing God. And the opportunity we have to know God by faith during our two-minute ride, that's it. Just this two minutes. It's the only chance we get to know God by faith. It can't be reproduced in heaven. There won't be any faith in the new earth. You can't trust something you already see. It's not possible. This fleeting life is it. One speck in our existence. One wisp of vapor. And then our two-minute opportunity will be gone. Well... There's a fascinating passage where Peter writes that the gospel of message has been sent by the Holy Spirit and these things, this is 1 Peter 1.12, these are things which angels desire to look into. And the Greek here gives a picture of an angel stooping down like an archaeologist studying an artifact. And Paul says something very similar in Ephesians, Ephesians 3.10. To the intent that the manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to who? Who would you think the manifold wisdom of God would be revealed by the church to? Well, you'd probably think the world, but that's not it. Maybe believers? No. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. 
Well, why are the principalities and powers in the heavenly places stooping down like an archaeologist to understand God by looking at us? Where have they been for eons of time? In heaven. Who's their teacher been? God. Is He an insufficient teacher? Who what have they seen with their own eyes? God. And why are they stooping down to understand us? To know the wisdom of God. It, it can only be one thing that I can think of. And that is, angels know nothing of living by faith. Only people, fallen, frail, men and women like you and me, are put in the predicament and amazing opportunity of living by faith in this life. A life where God's masked His presence for the time being. Last week, Mark played a video and it said, We can't see, but we can see the results of. How do you know there's wind? You see the leaves. We can see plenty of evidence that there's God, but we can't see God. And that makes all the difference. It's a huge deal. We take it for granted. But the angels are craning their necks to get a better look. Whenever we turn our back on a secret sin, we're changing the world. Refusing to lash out at our spouse, we alter the cosmos. Being generous to those in need, a change forever our capacity for happiness. C.S. Lewis wrote that even just sitting down and enjoying a cup of tea changes eternity if we do it in thanksgiving and gladness. We just put one faltering step in front of, foot in front of another on this step of life through all this terrain. We're being used by God in cosmic universal proportions, but it doesn't seem like it to us. It just seems like everyday life. It just seems like... We're in a position we shouldn't have to be in. You ever want to do something great for eternity? Well, God designed your personal epic adventure just so you could alter human history forever. And what He wants us to do is simply walk by faith. Let's look at Job's saga more closely. The book of Job, if you want to turn to it, we're going to be going through and looking at pieces of it. The book of Job begins with an unusual scene. A conversation between God and Satan in heaven. Uh, This is not a heaven with puffy clouds and harps and cherubs running around. It's more like a reception room. Maybe think about the Oval Office. The sons of God come to check in. The angels. To give an account of themselves. And Satan is among them. Isn't that interesting? Satan's in heaven. You know... Heaven's not necessarily so much who's there, but what their relationship is with God. Well, so Satan comes and checks in, and God says, From where do you come? Satan says, Well, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And God answers, Well, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Now, is God actually checking for information? Does an omniscient God need to know facts? Uh, Not really. Now, this is really smack talk, really, is what it is. It's cosmic, in-your-face talk. He's mocking Satan. Have you really looked at this human being of his own free will, does what you were supposed to do but didn't? Fear God and shun evil? Job's my main man. He's making you look awful, Satan. Of course, Satan answers trash talk with trash talk. Well, does God, Job, sorry, does Job fear God for nothing? You made a hedge around him. 
around his household, all he has on every side. Why say this? Well, you know, Satan's actually a job title. It means accuser. His given name's actually Lucifer. Satan's basic charge is that Job is just a shrewd businessman. He's not righteous. He just understands a good bargain. Serve God, get the goodies. Uh, Nobody goes into Satanism for love of Satan. They go into it for some benefit that they perceive, power or pleasure. The devil's just accusing God of being that. He's just pay to play. You've given him everything. Big family, security, wealth. Job was basically an ancient billionaire. Camels, you know, like a transportation company. If you have a trading company, you probably have a bank. You got oxen, you got farming, land interest. You, you, you got... You got donkeys, you basically own a car factory. I mean, he's a, he's a mega, mega business owner. What does Satan say about that? Well, you're just bribing Job to get his obedience. I would do that. I do that all the time. So, God tells him, go ahead and have his way with Job. Just don't lay a hand on his body. So, in one day, the entirety of Job's possessions are plundered, servants murdered. All of his sons and daughters killed in an accident. And the way Satan did it, he was making sure that there was no doubt that it was a supernatural event. Because it all happened simultaneously from different, completely different occasions. And the basic message is, no more goodies for you, Job. And what does Job do? Look at 121. He strips himself naked, shaves his head, falls to the ground, basically an ancient eastern near eastern way of mourning and Job worshipped and he said naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there the Lord gave and the Lord's taken away blessed be the name of the Lord did you see the word Satan hates so much there worshipped strip Job of absolutely everything dear to him in life and not only does he still choose God he even worships God God won Satan zero but note the final verse of chapter 1 122. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. This is going to be really important as we go through this and see his three friends' communication with him. Well, if Satan's anything, he's relentless. Seen two in heaven's almost exact rerun. But now more material for mocking. Look at 2-3. Then Satan, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And then he adds, And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. It's interesting here that God takes responsibility for Job's ruin. While Satan actually did it, God authorized it. Satan is always subservient to God's sovereign purposes, even when he thinks he's winning out. And again, God permits Satan to test his charge that Job's still in the the get-the-goodies mode. And this time with his health. Job 2.4 So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, he'll surely curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan leaves. You can almost hear him chuckling. He strikes Job with boils, skin cancer, soles of his heat to the crown of his fed, Head and Job takes a piece of broken pottery and just starts scraping himself. He's totally miserable. And at this point, his wife tests him. Job 2.9 Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. <laughs> so now I guess we know one of the reasons that God, I mean, sorry, Satan spared the wife. 
It's just so she could add insult to injury. But here's what Job answers. Incredible grace. I mean, look, think about all this guy's gone through. And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women. You're better than this. Don't speak as a foolish woman. You're not foolish. So here we have broken Job ministering to his wife. God too, Satan zero. But then again, there's this interesting sentence which closes out this episode, Job 2.10. And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Again, this is going to be really important as we consider what Job's about to hear from Eliphaz and his two friends. So, trial continues. This time, the trial is from his friends, the people who ought to be comforting him. Now, it's really important to note that Eliphaz and his two friends who show up actually are amazing friends. They genuinely care about Job. They're just misled. Consider this. They come and they sit for seven days mourning with Job and no one says a word. Would you do that? Sit for seven days? In the ancient Near East, the aggrieved would always speak first. So they waited for seven days for Job to say something. I wouldn't do that. That's amazing friendship. So then Job begins to speak and the dam breaks. And basically, the next 30 chapters or so is a conversation with these friends. And you can look in 8.5 and you can see kind of a, a, the, the basic gist of what Eliphaz and his two friends say. Job, if you would just earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty... If you were pure and upright, surely now He would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase. And this is basically what they say all throughout. Look, you must have done something really wrong. Because God doesn't punish the ungodly. uh, Sorry, God doesn't punish the godly. He only punishes the ungodly. So just figure out what it is and repent. And once you repent, God will restore you. Well, you would think Job might embrace this readily. Just confess it and it'll go away. Just have enough faith and it'll happen. That's just one problem. Job is a man of the utmost integrity. These guys are saying, make a plea bargain and you can get off. And he says, but I didn't do anything. I don't know anything to repent of. If I do that, I'm just manipulating. Look at Job 6.8. And we can see what Job does request. He's not going to do something without integrity, but here's what he does say. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me the thing I long for. 6.24 Teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I've erred. He's hurting and miserable, but he's still righteous. But what he really wants to know is, can I have my day in court with God? Can I understand why this is happening? And the the, the gist of what Job wants is to get with God, get an audience with God, and explain to God the missing perspective God must have. Because if he just understood what he was missing, then he would right this wrong. Look at uh, 1318. See now, I've prepared my case, Job says. I know that I shall be vindicated. Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with His net. In our age, we might hear a more summarized version of this. How could God let this happen? 
You ever said that? We may not speak so poetically as Job does, but the complaints quite filled, familiar. Look at 23, 2 through 5. Job speaking. Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No. But he would take note of me. There there the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. So Job's ready to enter the courtroom. He believes he'll emerge victorious. Look at those words. He would answer me. He would take note of me. I would be delivered forever from my judge. So, now, it's important to note that Job acknowledges God has a right to do whatever he desires. He never questions that. Apparently... Job sees God as somewhat distant and missing this perspective that Job can offer. But before we see how God deals with Job with this request for an audience, which Job gets, let's look at how God deals with Eliphaz and his two friends. Look at 43.7. This is what God ends up saying to Eliphaz and his two friends. Oh, there's no 43.7? 42, how about 42.7? Does it say, my wrath is aroused against you in 42.7? Thank you. 42.7, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Uh, Job will get quite a tongue lashing in a minute. But right now, let's look at God's dealing with Eliphaz. My wrath is aroused. Now, was his wrath aroused because of what they said about Job? You know, they were saying all through their their uh, soliloquies here that Job had missed the opportunity to repent. And Job must have done something wrong, which we know is incorrect. Because Job, in all of this, Job never sinned with his mouth. But... That's not what God was upset about. God's upset and blast them for what they said about God. Now, if you go back and look at what Eliphaz and his two friends say about God in all of this, it actually sounds pretty good. You could preach a lot of sermons from what they say there. But the, remember the main pitch that they made to Job? Repent and God will restore you. Does that sound familiar? See, what Eliphaz and his two friends are accusing God of is pay to play, just like Satan did. We do what God wants, and we get what we want from God. They're accusing God of being basically a cosmic vending machine. Well, no wonder God's ticked off. What Satan accused him of is what Eliphaz and his two friends accuse him of. All in very, wrapped in very... uh, God-honoring type language. But at the core, they're accusing God of basically being required to do what we ask Him to do. So, what would God do for somebody like this? Somebody who's basically taken Satan's side using righteous type uh, uh, wording. What would He do? Well, what He does is just totally let them off the hook. He just says, go have Job intercede for you and I'll completely let you off. So now we have righteous Job who did nothing to sin with his lips, spoke rightly of God, and he smashed to pieces. And Eliphaz and his two friends speak wrongly of God and deserve his wrath. 
and are totally let off the hook. You feeling better? Well, it gets worse. You would think that since Job spoke directly about God, God would not now give Job a hug and tell him how much he appreciates his long-suffering. But not yet. No. We've got to have a day in court. That's what Job asked for. So, we go to 38, 1 through 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who's this? who darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. In other words, Job, I'll be glad to sit before your board of inquiry and answer your demands uh, for satisfactory reasons. But before I answer them, I've got a few pre-trial questions for you. And my first one in chapter 38, verse 4, uh, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. No answer? Okay, well, verse 12. Uh, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? No answer again. Really? Verse 16. Have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. So for the next four chapters, Job questions him about very various intricacies of the universe, and particularly about the animal world. He has these two animals, Behemoth and Leviathan. And he says, have you ever messed with these animals? If you do, you won't do it again. And so these dumb creatures that I made that you can't deal with, You can't deal with them, but yet you think you can tell me what to do? Does that make a lot of sense? Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, writes this. When God speaks to Job, He doesn't explain, He explodes. He asks Job who he thinks he is anyway. He says that to try to explain the kind of things Job once explained would be like trying to explain Einstein to a little neck clam. God doesn't reveal His grand design, He reveals Himself. The message behind the splendor is, until you know a little about running the physical universe, Job, don't tell me how to run the moral universe. Along these same lines, uh, Frederick Buckner writes this, Throughout the book of Job, Job whined, Why are you treating me so unfairly, God? Put yourself in my place. No, God thunders in reply, you put yourself in my place. Until you can offer lessons on how to make the sun come up each day or where to scatter lightning bolts or how to design a hippopotamus, don't judge how I run the world. But remember, Job is a godly man, the most godly in all the earth. God's favorite guy. But he still has this struggle to understand life. Look at 42, 1 through 6. This is where Job ends up. Because God doesn't want Job to miss out on anything. And this is where the trial ends. After Job comes to this point, then God restores everything double. So this must be it. Then Job answered the Lord and said this, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you answer me. Well, I had heard of you by the ear, but now I see you with my eye. 
And here's what I do. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, now he sees God as he had not seen Him before. Before God was this righteous, omniscient, omnipresent God who had the right to do whatever He wanted to do, but didn't have the perspective that Job had. And there was distance between Job and God. But now, he has a different view. It was a long, bloody road. But he's brought Job into a far wealthier place because now he sees God as God really is. Now, I went through one of these experiences, and it was in the midst of this experience that this lesson of Job came alive to me. And I saw that the benefit of my suffering was to know God's God and I'm not. That is a really difficult thing to grasp. We all start with the notion that as a two-year-old, we are the parent and should be able to get everything we want, right? And it never stops, really. We, We learn that God can do whatever He wants to, but we fundamentally, like a two-year-old, think we should be able to tell God what to do, and He ought to do it. But when it was through this pain that I realized, yeah, really the important thing to do is to know that God is God. But then, of course, I, I, I said, okay, I understand this lesson. I understand when Job says, I'm vile. Another way to interpret that is, I'm small. And I can understand that, you know, okay, I'm really not as big as I thought I was. I need to trust that God has my best interest at heart. And that's really how I come to know God. I came to understand that knowing God is the ultimate of life. But then there was a harder question. Why do I have to go through all this pain? Why not just go to heaven and go to knowing God 101 and take the... The, the online course. Because after all, when we get to heaven, won't we know everything then? Why go through all this pain? Well, no. When we get to heaven, we won't know everything. That would make us God. And then I kind of saw it. My real breakthrough came. God showed me that the angels are stooping down like archaeologists watching me to know God. And then it dawned on me. They can't know God by faith. This is my only chance to ever know God by faith. And if I opt out, it's gone forever. You know the weeping and gnashing of teeth type things we see, those pictures, and it's clear in the passage that we're talking about servants of God that are experiencing this? Of course, people who are not servants of God will experience it too. They don't have their tears wiped away though. That that, that seems to be an, an ongoing circumstance. For us, it seems to be temporary because all our tears are wiped away. But I think one of the major things we'll be uh, shedding tears over is lost opportunity to know God by faith because this is it. We will never get another chance. It will be gone forever. There was a book and film series called Band of Brothers. It captured a lot of people's imagination. It's a little bit gory. I don't know how many females here watched it. But here's the basic premise. Some World War II guys, GIs, American GIs, developed a bond among themselves because they trusted each other with their lives. 
Even their wives had to come to understand that there was a bond between them that superintended even what they could have with their wives. And that is a bit of a portrait of what is available to us in our epic adventure, our quest. Because as we walk by faith, as we come to know God, we are creating a band of brothers type relationship with one another and with God Himself. You know, we know that Jesus said in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, to know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. This is life at its fullest, to do life in connections with others, persevering through difficulty. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells a parable of the four servants. Three faithfully invest his money, and one buries it in the ground. And one of the rewards given to the faithful servants might have come in a great surprise to the wicked and lazy servant. And it's this. Enter into the joy of your master. See, there's this bond that we're developing today as we walk through life by faith that will be here forever. And this particular bond, this by faith bond, this is the only time we have to do it. It really got, I really got it. The suffering made sense to me. You know, the suffering I went through in my original Job experience was something that came to me. I did not seek it. A lot of the trials and the valleys I've had since actually were opportunities God offered to me and said, I want you to do this, but you don't have to. And having this perspective, I looked at it and said, I think that this is my righteousness. You know how, remember in Romans, we talked about righteousness is like a body, each part of the body doing what it does best for the rest of the body. Well, sometimes that involves trouble. It involves responsibility that's a big headache. And at this point in my life, I can opt out and just go to the beach. I have enough money to last for the rest of my life, unless currency collapses or I get cancer or something. But instead, I look at this and say, you know, I would be missing out on what life's really about. I would be missing out on my two-minute adventure ride. I would be getting off halfway through. Why would I want to do that? Job had to see he didn't really have all the answers. So did I. As a billionaire, Job was always asked for his opinion. He was looked to as the wisest of sages. Why wouldn't he think he had all his answers? His experiences showed him that. If you have a lot of prestige in this world, even today, you're deferred to. You're made to think you're a lot smarter than you really are. I deal in politics quite a bit. One of the things that makes my stomach sour is to be around people in positions of power in groups and see how they're catered to and sucked up to. They work for us. They're our representatives. Why are you treating them like monarchy, for heaven's sakes? Well, it's because they have power. They have prestige. People want something from them. But you know what? It just isn't true. We all are needy, vile people who have this amazing opportunity. And we have the Spirit 
that gives us the power to pull off the opportunity to walk by faith. It's God's God, not me. Whatever circumstances I encounter in this life, whatever they are, they're just what I needed. Boy, that's true. It's not easy to embrace. So, it's really not that surprising why God would choose to make Job his first written, communicated man. Because this is life for all of us. And nothing matters more than knowing God. But Job reveals to us that while knowing God's the ultimate experience of life, it's often really tricky business, very hazardous even. If we really want to know God, we most likely will experience heartaches we never thought we could endure. We'll be betrayed by people we thought were our closest friends. We'll experience losses that seem unbearable and other trials and tribulations. But it's through these trials and tribulations we enter into a wealthier place. Seeing and knowing God as never before. I've learned that coming to know God by faith has a real important current aspect of happiness too. If we can see what's happening and say, this is in my best interest, then it turns what seems unbearable into something that's just training. Just like an Olympic athlete with the grueling agony of training, looking forward to a better day. James 1 teaches us this overtly. Really, every circumstance is a trial. Our inner I know best is always tempted to either complain because circumstances are inadequate by our definition, or alternatively, when things are peachy, we're tempted to say, ah, I did this. I control this. Look how wonderful I am. But really, in reality, like Job, I need a constant reminder of who formed me, who controls it, and who knows what's best for me. So the angels are craning their necks to learn of God's through our walk of faith. They understand the cosmic importance of our two-minute ride, but do we? It's hard to do because this walk of faith is really all we know. It's the only experience we have. When this life is over, we will be like the angels in this respect. We will never be able to know God by faith again. So let's grab all that's available to us. Whatever remaining time we have left, let's grasp it. This is reality. Reality is humility. When we have the willingness to see reality as it is, that is humility. And that's the fundamental foundation of our walk with God. The one who holds our breath in his hands and prepares our path, the path of our footsteps is also the sustainer of the sunrise and the sunset. Now, the routine things of life is where most of our existence rests. These valleys, they come. And making it through the valley is one of our greatest opportunities in life to know God. But when we come out of the valley, we go into the routines of daily life. And it's actually there where most of our opportunity to know God rests. And being faithful in the everyday routines is often more challenging than facing these very, very difficult trials. And next week, that's what we're going to talk about, is the opportunity to know God in everyday routine. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this amazing man, Job, who 
teaches us the the amazing reality that these principalities and powers are trying to understand you through us because we can know you by faith. Help us please grasp that on a daily basis. Embrace difficulty as your best for us because we can grow and mature thereby and come to know you in this battle, in this war that we live in where good and evil are clashing and where self is trying to rise above uh, where, where you sit. And God, I pray that you just give us the humility to see reality as it is, that you're God, we're not, you have our best interest, and we can trust it. In Jesus' name, amen.